after you've imbibed a huge steak dinner. And, uh, but let me tell you, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is of uh, Paul preaching in Troas, and he preached and he went on, and Eutychus fell asleep in the window and fell out the window and died. Now, I'm not saying that could happen again, but... Uh, and I don't have the power to raise you from the dead like Paul did. My favorite part of the story is Paul went down, raised him from the dead, and then it says he went back up and preached. You're not going to let anything mess up with his message uh, as he went. You know, I was uh, brought up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and it's on the ocean, so I've always loved being around the water. And uh, I got one fan here anyway. And, uh, I, I, but one of the things I didn't get to do an awful lot when I was uh, younger was to sail. Um, but every time I have, I've enjoyed it. And uh, there's something about when the wind catches the sails and you're heeling over and you're just feeling that that's really uh, unparalleled by anything else that I've experienced. It's a, it's a delightful thing. And I, I know, uh, I think, enough about San Antonio that you're close enough to the Gulf that many of you, one of your favorite things is to get out and either go fishing or just get on the water and, and maybe to sail or use power boats to get out there. Um, but it's, it's one thing to do that. It's another thing, and it's become a bit of a deal out on uh, California coast for uh, even teenagers now to sail around the world on their own. I can't imagine sending a 15-year-old, as one family did, a girl, to sail around the world, just uh, as happened last year. But back in uh, 1992, when this was not such a big thing, Michael Plant was uh, the best-known American ocean, open ocean sailor. He was from Minneapolis, but he fell in love with sailing. And uh, between 1988 and 1992, he logged 100,000 miles in the ocean by himself. Sailed around the world by himself uh, three times, was one of five people to have done it that many times. Held the American speed record for circumnavigating the world. And in 1992, there was the start of the race. There was a race every year, every couple of years, around the world for people who were addicted to that particular kind of pursuit of things. And it's obviously incredibly dangerous. So he went through the preparation and, and did everything, had to raise money. At that point, it was three quarters of a million dollars, which would be measured in tens of millions now. If, you, if any of you watched the America's Cup that was up in uh, San Francisco area, and you think about how much money um, the guy who owns Oracle, I think, uh, put into that ship that was pressing the tens of millions of dollars for, for that particular race. Obviously, a rich man's deal. He raised all the money he could, and then he had to sail across the ocean to get to France where the, it was going to start. And he sailed off, obviously enormously experienced, and he never showed up on the other side. He, uh, because they didn't have the kind of technology that was available, the Coast Guard ma uh, set out with a massive search, but there was a huge uh, 10,000 square mile part of ocean that he could be in. But a freighter uh, just happened to cross his ship, hull upside down, and uh, no sign of Michael Plant. And uh, the hull was intact. The, keel was present, the rudder was present, when they righted it, the mast was still there, the sails were fully rigged. What was missing was these ships that are out there doing that have huge bulbs at the bottom of their keel. The one he had weighed four tons, 8,400 pounds actually, and it had somehow broken off. And because he didn't have the ballast down beneath, 
the boat rolled over and there was no way of riding it again. People tried to put this together. He was meticulous and all they could think of was he was in a hurry so he didn't do the normal kind of thing that he normally did. He had to raise money and he didn't spend the time. Now, we have in, in, along the coast in California some uh, places where you can go and walk in the marinas and I love to walk in there and think of how much money is idle as these boats are sit there and I evaluate them. I mean, you inevitably do, you look at them. And, but one of the things I have to remind myself is that what I see above the waterline is not nearly as important as what's below the waterline. And I have a ship that looks enormously impressive. But if it's got a weak place in its hull, if its uh, rudder has come loose, if its uh, keel is in some way wrong, no matter how skilled you are above, it's what's below the waterline that really determines what's going to happen to that boat. The most impressive ship that's got dry rot in the, in the hull is headed for trouble. The reason that's important is because our lives are like that. We spend a lot of time in our life caring about what's above the waterline, what people see, what's visible. Uh, in terms of physical appearance, that's the one thing. We evaluate people by how they look and by how they dress. We look at above waterline things like the kind of jobs people have or the kind of homes they live in or the kind of cars they drive. We spend a lot of time in terms of our culture and appearance and all of those. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. They can be very meaningful and significant. But the real key to a person's life is what goes on below the waterline what can't be seen. And what happens there is going to determine ultimately everything else. In the book of Proverbs, and I've already quoted this verse, there's a verse that is of enormous significance. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above all, keep your heart, because out of it are the springs of life. Let me just take a moment. The, the word heart in the Bible doesn't mean what it does in English. The heart is the center of the emotions for us. But in biblical thought, the heart is, uh, well, we're said we think with the heart, we uh, feel with the heart, we choose with the heart. All of those things are ascribed to the heart. So the easiest metaphor for me is to think of the heart as the control center of life. And most of you are not old enough to remember, but um, those of us who are a particular generation, I was in Dallas when uh, um, they, we, we first sent a rocket to the moon and then the first time it, they, they carried people around the moon, I can remember when it was silent for so long. It was right at Christmas time when one of them occurred and, and whoever it was, you can't imagine this happening now, read Genesis 1 from outer space and we sat there listening to that. And then there was when they went around the dark side of the moon, what was there? Scientists thought they knew, but nobody had ever done it. And then when people walked on the moon, um, I, I once had the privilege of uh, sharing a conference and sharing a hotel room with one of the astronauts, James Irwin, who was a Christ follower, who always used to remind us that the amazing thing is not that man walked on the moon, but that God walked on Earth. But when, when you watched those on television, there was always something that happened. Everything went back to Houston. Houston was control center. 
And, and it was the place where everything was made. If you've watched the Apollo 13 movie, you can remember that call coming from outer space, Houston, we have a problem. Because it wasn't really ultimately in the hands just of the astronauts in that, in, in that craft, it was also what was going on at command center. So when, if you think about the heart biblically, think about the control center of my, of my life. Yeah, the mind is involved, but also the emotions. When uh, people talk today, well, it needs to travel from your head to your heart, the Bible would say, no, that's, your head is part of your heart. It, it's the center of our being. So I want to uh, look at the life of the man who wrote that uh, shift. And I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and, and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 2. Because Solomon is a figure of major importance, but he's also a, a, a warning to us that is important for me to kind of think about in my life. Now, in the story of God working with Israel, God has finally brought the people of Israel a king. Not the king that they chose, but the king that he had chose, the man after his own heart, David. And uh, David was going to have a son. God made a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there would always be a Davidic descendant able to lead the throne of, uh, and, and to sit on the uh, the throne of Israel. Second Samuel chapter seven is one of the great chapters in the Bible to understand how God is working. That's why when we talk about Jesus, the New Testament begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, because there needed to be a Davidic king. Well, the first follower of David is Solomon. Um, and by the time we get to chapter two, David is dying and he gives his kind of parting challenge to Solomon. I just want to look a couple of things about it, but it becomes important. So chapter two, verse one, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the, of the Lord, of Yahweh, your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord, that Yahweh may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons draw close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And what he is saying in effect to Solomon is, guard your heart with all diligence. Out of the heart are the issues of life. Well, we turn to chapter three and verse one. The details of chapter two are some of the things about Solomon coming to the throne, consolidating his power. And chapter three begins with uh, some introductory verses that give us a kind of sense of the greatness of Solomon. David had been a warrior king, and David had extended the kingdom. And uh, he had taken Israel from a beaten, defeated nation that cowered before, if you can think of his life, Goliath, one great Canaanite Philistine warrior and God had used a teenage boy to kill him and then to use David to become the one who ultimately 
made Israel a great nation, one to be reckoned with. And Solomon is now going to succeed him. He's not going to be a man of war. He's going to be a nation builder. And so what we have in this first little section is a kind of introduction to Solomon, a kind of record of his great achievements. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he'd finished building his own house and the house of the Lord of Yahweh, the temple, and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at their high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. No temple was built. And we can read that and read it fairly simply, but there's some fairly significant things going on. When it says Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh and married his daughter, that is a huge statement of destiny and political transformation. Because marriage alliances weren't romantic engagements, they were political acknowledgments. And Egypt had never allowed uh, a princess of Egypt to marry anything but an Egyptian. But now Israel's become a power. And it's become a nation of significance. So significant that Pharaoh feels compelled to make a kind of alliance that will bring peace so that there won't be a challenge presented. Egypt was the greatest country of, of the day. And, um, you know, Egypt lived its life not thinking anything about um, Israel, it didn't matter. It had never been significant. It wasn't any advantage in making an alliance. There wasn't any reason to be concerned about it. But now God has forged together this nation. You know, it's, it's interesting how, um, and uh, forgive this, but um, Canadians will often say, you know, living next to the United States is like a mouse being in bed with an elephant. The elephant pays no attention to the mouse, but the mouse has to pay attention because any time the elephant moves, the mouse is threatened. Well, that really is the way it works in the world. People have to take account of the United States. But suppose the United States suddenly felt that there was some power of some little country that had never been, and now we've got to make this kind of relationship with it. So this is the hugest compliment can be made to Solomon. He's a man of international significance, leading a nation so important. Now, there's a dark side to that. Because God had said that you were not to marry and intermarry with the nations, the, the Canaanite nations, the Hittites, the, the Amorites, the, the uh, Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Electric Lights. Uh, <laughs> you were not to intermarry with them. But Solomon could look and say, yeah, but it doesn't say the Egyptians. And, and he could perhaps carve out, you know, this, this is justified. It's politically strategic. Isn't it a romantic alliance? Goes and says that he brought him, brought her into the city, and, and yet he carried out his building achievements. So you'll notice that it says that he brought her there until he, until he had finished building his own house. If you ever get the chance to go to Jerusalem, I hope you get a chance to go to what's called the City of David. Now, the striking thing about the city of David is it's outside the present walls. And it's just a little kind of sloping hill. 
it has the most exciting excavations almost that you can see in the, in the country and you can look on these things and identify certain times the tunnel that Hezekiah built, the wall that Nehemiah built. I mean, it's just, to my mind, thrilling to be there. But it's not much. And the city of David was not much. And then Solomon came and Solomon extended the city, built it, put a wall around it and he turned what was really a kind of uh, uh, glorified village into a city that became so majestic that, for example, we'll read later in the book of Kings, Queen of Sheba comes all the way from southern Arabia to come up and then says, the half hadn't been told me. I can't believe what you've built here. One of the most glorious places that now existed in the world. Solomon did that. And the center of that was the temple. I mean, he's a man who was a builder of enormous significance and built a nation and built a city and built a capital. Solomon was a man who was a great son of a great man. And it says, well, notice it in verse 2. People were worshiping at the high places. Now, what that means is there were elevated places around, and the Canaanites had a system where they would find a hill, they would build a little structure, and they would set up idolatry, an idol at that particular place. And in De- Deut- uh, pardon me, Deuteronomy chapter 12, God had absolutely prohibited Israel. They were to tear down all of these places. Now, there wasn't a major tabernacle structure. It had kind of been broken apart over the years. David had brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city. He wanted to build a temple worthy of God. God had said, it's a good idea, but you're not going to do it. Your son is going to do it. He'd prepared for all of that. But the temple itself, or the tabernacle itself, apart from the Ark of the Covenant, was at a place called Gibeon. We'll get to that in just a moment. But it says in verse 2, the people were sacrificing at the high places because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. There was no temple. And apparently the feeling was, well, God had said we're only to go to the one place in the nation, but there really isn't a one place. So we'll do our own thing. So read the next verse. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. He was on course. He was doing what he ought to be doing. There was a genuine commitment to the Lord. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. You ought to draw a circle around that. It's translated in the English Standard Version only. It's translated in others except. He loved the Lord except. He was a man who did the exceptional. But he did what God had said not to do. He worshipped at the high places. Not not the one at Gibeon only, but at other ones. He gave himself permission. And what I want to suggest to you 
and what I think becomes significant is that the nature of that accept in our lives will determine the lasting influence of our lives. Because if you stop reading at this point, and then we'll read a little bit further, you would have predicted that Solomon would leave a legacy that would be unrivaled. Instead, within a few years after Solomon dies, his kingdom is split, and the nation is never the same again. But it didn't look like that when the temple was being built and when the city was being built and when he was worshiping God and praying one of the great prayers in the Bible. He loved the Lord and walked in the statutes of David only. He worshiped at the high places. And one of the challenges in my life is to ask what that only is. That except is. He, he, he loved the Lord. Yeah, sure, he uh, visited a pornographic site every once in a while. He, he loved the Lord. Yeah, he may have fudged his expense account every now and then. He loved the Lord, but... Well, there's nothing really wrong with taking that coworker when they were on a trip out for coffee. She needed just some companionship. He loved the Lord, except it wasn't convenient to give right now. Too financially stressed. You, you fill in the except blank. Well, Let's go on, because the, the passage makes nothing of this. It just notes it, it's just there. As a matter of fact, what we read next is, is one of the greatest moments in Solomon's life. And you'd think that that little except, yeah, okay, we all have onlys in our life. So look at verse 4. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. It was the legitimate one where the tabernacle was. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. How many do we have? A hundred burnt offerings out here? <laughs> the, the steak, I think uh, we're supposed to... Uh... Okay, if it makes you feel better, go ahead. I... At Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. We're told specifically of three times this is going to occur. This happens in a dream, but it's not merely a dream. This is a, a personal encounter with God himself. And, and he comes to Solomon. And he says to him, the most amazing thing that's given in the Bible. Ask what I should give you. Blank check, Solomon. Fill it in. What do you want me to give you? Anything you want. <laughs> Imagine the Lord appearing to you. What, what would be your answer at that point? Are you serious? Anything I want? Well, 
Solomon's probably about 20 at this time. And his answer is one of the high points of his life. He loved the Lord. And this shows his love for the Lord. And Solomon said, and he begins with praise, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart before you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. You have kept your promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You've fulfilled the covenant that you made with him. And then he describes his problem. Oh, Yahweh, my God, You've made my ser- your servant king in place of David, my father, although I'm but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. That was term for military leadership. And, and your servants in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. This is beyond my competence. This is beyond my understanding. This is beyond my experience. Give your servant, therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people. Now part of this gets a little bit frustrating and I I don't, translators always have huge challenges when they try to take something written and put it in another language. And what they say is not, the way the English Standard Version translates it is, is not wrong. But let me tell you what he literally asked for. He asked for a hearing heart. A heart that hears you. A a heart that responds to you. Now, he wanted a hearing heart so he would be able to discern. So the idea of discerning mind, that, that fits in. But it's interesting that he uses the word heart. Give me a discerning heart. My dad told me that if I follow you with my whole heart, give me a discerning heart so that I desire the right things, I think the right things, I choose the right things, so that I can lead this your people. And God's response to that is one that you know and understand. It says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right Behold, I will now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning, and it's the word heart again, a wise and discerning heart, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I will give you also what you've not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall walk with you all your days, and you shall walk in my ways." keeping my command, my statutes and my commands as your father David walked. Then I will lengthen, I will give you length of days. You've asked for a, a heart that hears. I'll give you a heart that hears. Now there's no greater moment in Solomon's life than this. God has said, you asked the right thing. You asked for a wise and discerning heart. And as the story begins to play itself out, the book emphasizes the way in which God riches enriches him and blesses him. For example, let's just take a quick tour uh, through chapter 4, for example. In chapter 4, verse 1, King Solomon was king over 
all Israel, and it names a bunch of people. Then in verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. There was all kinds of other nations now that came under authority. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. There's never been a time in Israel's history since that moment when they had that extent of a kingdom. It's almost the amount of property that God had promised to Abraham that would ultimately be theirs. Those people brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Verse 28, uh, verse 25. Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. That is from the, the uh, uh, north, Dan, to Beersheba in the south. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. All the days of Solomon. Verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. Verse 34, the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And then the passage goes on to talk about him building the temple and all that he did to bring into being the temple. It's the highlight of what the writer sees. Chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 are all devoted to the building of the temple. And God appears to him in the midst of all of that. And we have in chapter 9 and verse 4, God appearing at this later stage, years later in his life, saying, as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. But sadly, there is 1 Kings chapter 11. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. Now King Solomon, chapter 11, verse 1, loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not come into marriage with them. And it's now quoting Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 34. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh. He gave himself permission. After all, that wasn't specifically prohibited in the Old Testament. So God hasn't explicitly said no, so I can safely do it. He brought uh, Pharaoh's daughter, who was a worshiper of pagan gods, and allowed her to practice her idol worship within the city until he built the temple. Then he built a special place for her just outside the city. But somehow one woman who wasn't 
Hebrew. He was already married when he married the daughter of Pharaoh. But one woman didn't meet his desires. And so it begins to say now he crosses the line. Now he goes specifically against two verses of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Daniel, uh, pardon me, Deuteronomy chapter 17, when it says a king in Israel must not multiply wives. I wonder why he did it. I wonder how he rationalized it. It says in the text he loved many women. You don't love women when you've got 700 wives and 300 concubines. You love having women. You love using women. You love the desires of women. You don't love women when you collect them like that. I was reading an old sermon this week of mine. Um, I don't do that very often. I was preparing for this. Uh, and, uh, or something else. And, and um, it was when um, Wilt Chamberlain, I happened to preach the, the time that Wilt Chamberlain died. And Wilt Chamberlain, for those of you who remember, was I mean, this awesome player in terms of his dominance and his power and the way he could control a game. And uh, he couldn't deal with Bill Russell, but everybody else um, he was dominant over. And he boasted about the fact that he, uh, he'd slept with 20,000 women. And nobody really doubted that he had. Do you know that when he died, his body wasn't found for four days because he was alone. There's something significant about that, isn't there? Had women, and he dies utterly alone. And something happened in Solomon's life, that permission he'd given. But notice it says, and his wives at the end of verse 3, turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Now, here's something really significant. David's heart was faithful to the Lord even though he was an adulterer with Bathsheba. But the faithfulness wasn't, he was wrong. He was unfaithful when he sinned, but when his sin was brought before him, he repented of his sin. A heart that's faithful to the Lord is not a sinless heart, but it is a repenting heart. And Solomon never repented. His only opened wider and wider and wider. He never would have believed when this all started, that he would build a temple for pagan gods next to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. But read on. It says, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch. Moloch was the god to whom children were sacrificed. 
the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to other gods. Only he didn't abolish the high places. But he ends up, the high places where Yahweh was worshipped wrongly. And he ends up building high places where pagan gods are worshipped abominably. There's a great truth in life. I think of Charles Spurgeon who said it. That God will not allow his children to sin successfully. It is one of the things that Hebrews says. That God disciplines those who are his true children. I remember when uh, one of our elders up in Canada came to tell me and the man who was chairman of the elders, and we were good friends, that he was leaving his wife to go to another woman. And I can remember, I just began to cry. I hadn't expected to. But I had to look at him and say, Ray, I'm crying because I... I know God is not going to let you get away with this. And the price is going to be higher than you think you're going to pay. And by God's grace, it was really high. Because if there'd been no penalty, it would be a sign that he wasn't a true child of God. God will not let his children sin successfully. The Lord disciplines those whom he receives. And Solomon gets the discipline. But we're talking about being men of influence. Solomon could have had such influence. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon and now there's a third appearance and this one is an appearance of judgment. It's over. I'm not in your life, it's your son. And when your son Rehoboam comes to the throne there's going to be an adversary that rises up And under Solomon's son, the nation was split in two, and Israel never existed as a nation of 12 tribes again. Still doesn't. And his sin led to all kinds of other things. Solomon was a man who had a great start. But a great start is no guarantee of a great finish. He loved the Lord except small defections, small compromises can lead to large consequences. There's a reason that we look at a Billy Graham in his age and weakness, but we have great respect for him. Because he and a group of other men, when he was becoming enormously popular, 
made a vow and covenant together that they would not do certain things. And all through his life, he kept to that. Many of them were about women. Others of them were about funds. They studied the things that had caused evangelists to fall. And we need to know ourselves because my only won't be the same as your only. He loved the Lord only And and that's the question of Solomon. My son, keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it are the springs of life. Men's groups, small groups, getting together are important. And there's a lot of talk about having accountability partners. And there's a value in having accountability partners. But no one ultimately can keep your heart except you by the Spirit of God. Because you can lie flat out to an accountability partner. I'm not saying that doesn't mean they're enormously valuable. They are. Especially the ones who will pin you to the wall when they think you're playing with something. But I need to do some examining my own heart and say, you know, Gary loved the Lord. Except... I can't afford to give myself permission. I I can't afford to get on a high wire act. I want to finish well to the glory of God. I want to run with endurance the race that's set before me, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. Is your life just coddling sin. I was an English major in university and you had to memorize certain things back in that day, but I've never forgotten a little snippet of Alexander Pope. Vice is a creature of such frightful mean appearance as to be hated, seen needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, grown familiar with its face, we first abhor, then pity, then embrace. Solomon could never imagine he would embrace Moloch. But he did. Are are we taping these? Okay, there's a story I won't tell then. Yeah, 